Friends, uh, will you pray with me? Loving Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are the God who speaks and speaks through your word. We pray that you would help me to speak clearly and help each one of us by your spirit to understand it so clearly that we would understand that Christ is for all, that in him we have it all, and that we should proclaim him for your glory. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Ma, 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 ma. To understand Mandarin correctly, you need to understand tones because tones distinguish the meaning of words in Mandarin. To understand surfing, you need to understand waves. To understand cooking, I'm told you need to understand flavours because taste is king. To understand cricket, you need to know how to bat, bowl and catch. Please tell the Australian cricket team. <laughs> but today we will see that to understand this world and to understand the meaning of life, you need to understand God's plan. And to understand God's plan, you need to understand two things. That Christ is for all and that we proclaim Christ because in Christ we have it all, perfection. So let's begin to look at this together. Uh, the first point is that Christ is for all. Uh, so far in Colossians, we've seen that Paul, uh, the apostle or Jesus' special representative, is writing to Christians in Colossae. Uh, that's a town in what you and I would call uh, modern-day Turkey. The time is about 50 AD, about 2,000 years ago. The start, Paul thanks God for their faith in Jesus. But who is Jesus? Colossians 1, 15 to 19, uh, tells us that Jesus is the visible image of the God that we can't see. He is God in human skin. Fully God, fully man. He is unique. Jesus is the king of everyone and everything. But next, Paul says this, verse, chapter 1, verse 24. Now, I rejoice in what was suffered for you. Why does Paul rejoice and what was suffered for them? Well, we look at the context. So we go back uh, perhaps just to verse 21. Let me read that. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behaviour, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you wholly in his sight without blemish and free from accusation if you continue in your faith. Christ suffered for them by his death on the cross. Before verse 21, we were God's enemies in our minds and because we're enemies in our minds, it resulted in evil behaviour. We deserve to be punished by God forever in hell. But verse 22, God reconciled us to himself. He made us, his evil enemies, into his forever friends. How? Through Jesus' death. Jesus was fully punished for what we did wrong. And so our debt of wrongdoing as uh, chapter 2 calls it, is fully paid for by Christ. 
So we are fully forgiven, declared perfect or blameless, verse 22, in God's sight. And that is why Paul is rejoicing. But we continue on. Look with me at verse 23 and following. This is the gospel that you have heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Now I rejoice in what was suffered for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. This gospel of who Jesus is and his dying to save us is being proclaimed to all because Christ is for all. Verse 23. And God has called Paul, verse 25, to become a servant of this gospel. But what does Paul mean in verse 24 when he says, I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions? Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, assure us that he doesn't mean that Christ's death to save us only partly paid the punishment for our sins. And we, you and I, might need to suffer just that little bit ourselves in order to be fully forgiven. In the, we sang a hymn this morning, um, It Is Well With My Soul, and my sins have been paid not in part but in whole. Fully paid for by Christ. And to understand what Paul means here, the key is in verse 24 and the next words that follow. The words, for the sake of his body, the church. Before Paul, called Saul, was a passionate Jew who went on a search and destroy mission. He thought he was serving God, but he'd seek out Christians and kill them. Or if he couldn't kill them, at least he would put them in jail. But one day he was going to Damascus in Syria. And on that road, he meets the Lord God, who appears to him and says, Saul, Saul. Acts chapter 9, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, who you are persecuting, he replied. The Lord said, this man, that is Paul, is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him, Paul, how much he must suffer for my name. Paul discovers that Jesus, Jesus is in fact the Lord God. But Jesus doesn't ask Paul, why are you persecuting Christians? He says, why do you persecute me? And that's because when people become Christians, they become part of the body of Christ. Verse 24, which is the church. When others hate or uh, hurt or kill Christians, it's the same as hating or hurting or attacking or persecuting Christ. Before Paul did the hating and hurting, but now that he's become a Christian, he's the one that's being hated and hurt <laughs> as he proclaims this gospel of Christ. Jesus suffered and died to save those who trust in him. And so that suffering is unique to Christ. It's 
the suffering that only Christ can do to, to pay full atonement for our sins, to, to forgive us completely. But Jesus rose again and continues to suffer in this world as people reject him and his body in this world, his followers, his disciples, the church. So as Paul suffers, he, along with all Christians, are filling up the total amount of suffering that Christ and his body, the church, will have to endure until Jesus returns to end the suffering completely for those who trust in him. Do you expect to suffer? You should. Suffering in this world is normal because our world is under God's judgment for our sin. And sadly, you and I add to the suffering in this world when we lie, when we hurt one another, and so on. But if you're a Christian, there's an extra reason why we will suffer. Look with me at 2 Timothy 3.12. Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. In John 15, Jesus says, and Jesus warned his followers, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. And so if we don't suffer for being Jesus' followers, it could just be because we are not living godly lives. You know, it's pretty easy to avoid suffering. We could avoid suffering by, by not speaking up for Jesus when people mock him and laugh at him or Christianity. Yeah, that would be a way to avoid suffering. You could um, say avoid suffering uh, by cheating. You know, get good marks in exam and get a promotion at work. But Paul suffered. It was part of his life. He did this because it was the job God had given him, verse 25, to tell the word of God in full, even if he did suffer rejection for it. But what word of God is he telling in full? Verses 26 and 27 call it a mystery or, uh, in other words, a secret. Look with me, verse 26. The mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations but is now disclosed to the saints. To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles. The Gentiles, the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. In Genesis 1, God, our loving King, created the world and blessed it. And sadly, in Genesis 3, people said no to God as King, doing what we wanted, living our own way, not what God wanted. And so God punished us with death. We all die because we all sin. But God still loved us and had a special plan to save and to bless us. And he revealed this plan to Abraham, Genesis 12, through a series of promises. He promised to make Abraham into a big nation, to give him land and to bless the whole world through his family. But who would be in God's big nation? Where would the land ultimately be? And how would the blessing ultimately come? 
these things were all still a mystery. Why? Because God, verse 26, had kept them a mystery. He kept them hidden. Abraham's family, the Jews, were God's chosen people. They had plenty access to God. They had all the advantages of knowing God. They had the covenants, they had the prophets, they had the law, they had the promises. And just like a jigsaw puzzle, all the bits and pieces of God's mystery plan were there in the Old Testament, but no one knew or could work out how they all fit together. In fact, the Jews were so blind that when God's son Jesus turned up to explain and fulfil God's plan by being the key piece of the puzzle, what the Bible calls the cornerstone, they threw the key piece of the puzzle away. Of course they didn't get it. They rejected Christ and killed him. Now, uh, I'm not an expert on these things, but, but I imagine if you throw the key piece of the puzzle to, away, you're not going to get the puzzle. But God is so amazing, so wonderful, that he actually uses the Jews' very rejection of him as the means of fulfilling the blessing promised to Abraham. Uh, One example of that is Romans 9. Uh, It'll come up. Let me read this. Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. That's Christ. (laughs) As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offence. And whoever believes in him, that's Christ, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. You see, the Jews' very rejection of Christ, of the cornerstone, opens the way for non-Jews, in other words, the Gentiles, to be part of God's people, to receive God's blessing. And we see that in the words there in verse 33 at the end. Whoever, not just Jews, but whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Jesus was the Christ, the King of the Jews, from King David's family. It doesn't get more Jewish than that who would die and rise again to save the world and fulfil God's promised blessing. But the New Testament makes crystal clear what the Old Testament had kept hidden in shadow, in mystery. That is, that Jesus is not just the king of the Jews. He's the king of the whole world the Gentiles as well. Christ is for all people. And that is why Colossians 1.27 says, God's mystery is Christ in you. Who's the you there? Meaning in you Gentiles. Not just in the Jews. Everybody knew that Christ was for the Jews, but Christ for the Gentiles? Wow, that's a mystery revealed. Gentiles. Non-Jews, people like you and me, Australian, Asian, African-American, not African-American, but Africans and American, although African-Americans are included if they trust in Jesus. Everyone, Christ is for all. 
And so now anyone who trusts in Jesus, verse 27, has the hope of sharing in God's glory, of sins forgiven, of perfect eternal life in heaven with God. Do you have this hope? I hope you do. My mother, who died in June, had this hope. Some of you may know a a guy at this church, John Garrett, who has just passed away. John had this hope. Colossians 3, and I won't read it, but it'll come up, says, All who trust in Jesus now have the glory of heaven, being in heaven with Christ. No more pain, no more suffering, no more sadness, no more death. Life to the full, total satisfaction by glorifying God and Christ and sharing in their glory. That's the glory in you. But it's only for those who trust in Christ. If you don't trust in Jesus, sadly, you are still unforgiven. You are under God's judgment, facing endless punishment in hell. So I beg of you, Please, please turn to Christ and trust in him. He died to share his glory with you. So this hope of glory is so wonderful, what should we do? Well, the next point, we proclaim Christ because in Christ we have it all, perfection. Look with me at verse 28. We proclaim him, that's Christ, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone perfect or fully mature in Christ. What we need to understand is that part of sharing in God's glory, verse 27, is proclaiming Christ, verse 28, so that we may be perfect, fully mature in him. Look with me at Romans uh, chapter 8. We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. God's goal doesn't just stop at saving you and justifying you. God wants to change us, to transform us, to glorify us, to conform us into the likeness of his son so that we become perfectly Christ-like, just like his glorious son, verse 29. For when we are most Christ-like, that's when God is most glorified. But why does Paul need to present everyone, verse 28, perfect or fully mature in Christ? Two reasons. First, because Christ is Lord of all. That's why it's everyone. Remember back to Colossians 1, Jesus is God. All things were created by him and through him and for him. He's the king of everyone and everything. Christ is for all. And so we proclaim him to, for, 
to all. If you live under heaven, verse 23, and I assume under heaven means here on earth and you're all here on earth, then this message of Jesus is for you. Jesus is king, lord, boss of your life. And so your life's goal should be to live for Jesus, to glorify him. So that in all we do and all that we say, we should do it as Colossians 3.17 will tell us. We do it for Christ. The second reason Paul proclaims Christ is to present everyone perfect. Why? Because we aren't perfect. Not one of us. If we were to ask your family or friends, uh, they might say, uh, he's not bad or, or, or she's pretty good. You know, even I consider myself to be a nice guy. Yeah. Um, Meek, you know, Matthew Meek. (laughs) But this may surprise you. I'm far from perfect. Just ask my wife. Especially when technology doesn't work for me. Then you see Matthew not so meek. But you see that nice and pretty good are a long way from perfect. But if we are in Christ, God sees us as perfect. Why? Because Christ is perfect. We have perfect status in Christ, even though the things that we think or do or say are still affected by sin. And so while we wait for heaven where we will experience our perfect status as perfect reality, we aim each day to become fully mature, the perfect person in Christ that we already are. Colossians 3 will explain that that process happens as as we put off our old self, put off lying and greed and so on, and um, we put on our new self, love and Christ-like character. Uh, We'll let whoever's preaching on chapter 3 explain that. Let me come back to chapter 1. Look with me at verse 29. To this end, I labour, Paul says, struggling with all his energy which so powerfully works in me. I want you to know how much I am struggling for you and for those at Laodicea. For all who have not met me personally, my purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love, so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. God wants all people to be fully mature, perfect in Christ, but that's going to take some effort. And so Paul labours hard, verse 29, struggling, literally agonising, for all those at Colossae and Laodicea and other places, chapter 2, verse 1. Why? Because Paul wants everyone to be mature in Christ. This is part of God's plan. He wants them, chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, to know that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are in Christ. In Christ we have it all. Why is this so important? 2 Timothy 3.15 says... The goal of the Bible is to make us wise, that's wisdom, right? Wise wisdom, for salvation in Christ. 
Proverbs chapter 3 says, Wisdom is the tree of life for all who grasp hold of it. The word for treasures here in, in chapter 2 verse 3 is the exact same one that Jesus uses in the parables. For example, Matthew 13, where he says that you would sell everything you have in order to get this treasure. That's how vitally important it is. That's why Paul wants us to find all the treasures of wisdom in knowledge in Jesus. Because in Christ, we have it all. We have it all. True life, salvation, perfection, total fullness, everything worthwhile. What are you working so hard for? To be famous? Not ridiculously famous, but, you know, just your 15 or perhaps even 16 minutes of fame? To be the best, the number one, for money, for your own glory? Andre Agassi, the former world number one tennis player at the time he was, said this, I'm the number one tennis player on earth and yet I feel empty. How pathetic. Do you know how hard it is to get to number one in the world? Just ask Mark Philippoussis or ask any of the Australians. It's, it's hard. There's a lot of effort. And you get there, number one, and how do you feel? Uh, elated, wonderful, on top of the world? No, I feel empty. Famous Baptist preacher, Charles Spurgeon, um, Rod confirmed with me this morning that he is indeed Baptist. Although the key thing is being in Christ, not in Baptist, said, you will never know the fullness of Christ until you know the emptiness of everything but Christ. Money, being number one, doesn't bring you happiness. But why is Paul telling us this? Verses 4 and 5. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit, and delight, literally joy, rejoice, to see how orderly you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. Uh, does anyone watch those Pirates of the Caribbean movies or anything like that? Yeah, yeah. You don't have to stick up your hands. Um, if you know, I can probably see it in your heart that you want to, but it's okay. Um, it's not really hard to work out why they're so popular. They, you know, it's up to number six or something. It's because we know, we all know, that if you've got something valuable, there's always someone out there, Jack Sparrow, who wants to steal it, right? <laughs> if you've got treasure, people want to take it away. And we have treasure in Christ. We have everything in Christ, perfection, fullness, the whole shebang. And this world and Satan wants to trick us into thinking that Christ's worthless. You know, they say things like, oh, he's a myth. Or he was a misguided guy who uh, tragically died thinking he was God and he called himself king. Uh, or at best, people see Jesus as a, you know, a prophet or a, or a good teacher. Uh, but Paul warns us here in verse 4, don't let anyone deceive or trick you from having the treasure that is in Christ. That's because if you have Jesus, 
You have everything. As the Bible teaches, Jesus plus anything is nothing. But Jesus plus nothing else is everything. That's the gospel mass that, that, that Mark was teaching us last week. And the words of the great hymns, in Christ alone my hope is found. All other ground is sinking sand. I, I know that's two hymns, you know, like there's a little bit from here and a little bit, yeah. Anyhow, the point, in Christ alone my hope is found. All other ground is sinking sand. Paul's great delight and joy, verse 5, is to see Christians standing firm in the treasure, in the perfection that is Christ. And we stand firm how? We stand firm in Christ and his gospel by reading the Bible, by prayer, by, by meeting with other Christians at church, at Bible study, at uni, wherever it is. The key question is Jesus king of your life? Is Jesus the king of your life? And he should be. And if so, will you then shape your whole life around him and his plans? The key question in life isn't, will I pass my exam? Will my sports team, Manly, do better next year? Who will I marry? Or how can I get a better job or home? Or where's my next holiday? They're not the key questions. Sorry. That's your plans. God's plan is about Christ. Christ for all and fullness in Christ. And so the key question then becomes, what is my part in God's plan and purpose? What's your mission statement? What's your goal or purpose in life? Our WBC mission statement is to know Christ and to make him known. And it's based on this, Colossians 1.28. At AFES and Focus, our mission statement is also based on this. Proclaiming Jesus Christ at university to present everyone mature in him. The key point of Colossians is that life's purpose, life's treasures, life's all are found all in Christ. Christ is for all, and in Christ we have it all. And so if you want that, the key is you need to be in Christ. In other words, to become a Christian. And if you already are in Christ and have it all, then what will you do? You will proclaim Christ to present everyone, your family, your friends, and a desperately needy world to be perfect, fully mature in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for showing us and revealing your wonderful, mysterious plan to us, giving us eyes that we can now see that Christ is the head of all, that he is for all, and that in Christ we have it all. We pray that no one would rob us from this wonderful treasure that is Christ, that we would proclaim him to all, to present everyone mature in him. And for those of us who do not yet know Christ, that you would do that work in our hearts so that we can see what you see. Christ over all, for all, and in Christ we have it all. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.